We're going to begin our study in Revelation chapter 13. And uh, we're going to begin in verse 11 and go through verse 18 for our text. We spent quite a a good deal, a couple weeks at least, looking at who the Antichrist is, what the Bible has to say about him in the Old Testament, uh, because there's much there in the book of Daniel. And we saw what John uh, sees here in the book of Revelation and kind of drew some some things out of that. Pretty scary individual, uh, pretty powerful individual. And again, this is all an explanation of Revelation chapter 6 and the seals, the seven seals that happened. And uh, the first four seals, you have peace, war, famine, death. They all have to do with this rise to power of Antichrist who brings peace and then makes war. And uh, I hope that's been pretty clear. Tonight we want to focus on a different individual because the Antichrist is not alone. He has somebody who is there with him, and we call him the false prophet. So let's read in the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 11, or chapter 13, down uh, verse 11 through verse 18. Revelation 13:11. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. And he exercises all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth all the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had the power to do in sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast, which had a wound by a sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell save that he had the mark or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred threescore and six. So this is probably one of the more familiar passages to you in Revelation. I'm sure you've probably read this, especially those last couple verses that deal with the mark of the beast. Um, You're probably familiar with some of the things that go on in here. And I don't know how many countless hours or countless days or weeks, even more probably, have been spent focusing on that number, 666. What does it mean? What is the mark? What's it going to be like? It's something we have been trying probably since the the writing of this book to identify. Uh, But there's other important key information in here that we need to try to have an understanding of before we get to the discussion of the mark. That's pretty important, it is, especially with uh, what the Bible has to say about it and how bad it is, and and, uh, there's judgments for taking the mark. But we need to understand uh, some things around that. So we've looked a lot at Antichrist and how he is anti-God. He is opposed to anything that is God's. In fact, he, he claims himself to be God. That's what the whole abomination of desolation. Remember that big term uh, that we saw in the book of Daniel and Jesus tells us to watch out for? 
Paul lets us know that that's basically when this guy declares himself to be God in the temple and sits as God in the temple. So we, we are very much clear that the Antichrist is anti-God. His name is fitting, right? But let's not be mistaken. There's going to be a religious side to all of this too. When the end of days comes and this seven-year period begins to unfold, it's not going to be just totally political. There's going to be a religious side to it. It's going to be integrated with it. And in many ways, it will move to the forefront. The Antichrist is the political face of all this. He is the power, the dominant force in this end of times. He is the one who takes charge of the world, rules it as sole ruler of the world. The leader of the religious side will be who we call the false prophet. We get his name from chapter 20. Um, verse 10. The devil deceived them, was cast in the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. So, I'm not kind of just making up a name. John himself, or, or Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, calls this person the false prophet. So there's going to be not only political, but there's going to be a religious side. That really shouldn't surprise us, actually. Um, because if you, you think about it, there, there's two things here. First of all, man, man is created to worship. We worship something. It's like this inherent need in us. Actually, we're created that way. Uh, I believe it's Solomon puts it in the book of Ecclesiastes that he has put eternity into man's heart. Um, we're created with this, if you will, God-shaped void within our souls, within our being, uh, that's, that is meant to worship Him. The problem is we fill it with everything else, right? If, we, if we're not worshiping God, we're worshiping something else. It's not a lack of worship. We worship something. So we can either worship God, or we worship a man-made deity, or we worship man himself, we, we worship ourselves, or we worship man's accomplishments. We worship something. We worship someone. It's not a question of if, it's a question of who. Now, so, we have that inherent need. Humanity has that inherent need. And we often see that po paired with political power. People can play on it or use it to their advantage. But we see religion paired with political power quite often. You see it in Scripture. Pharaoh had his priests, didn't he? The two magicians, they're called magicians. The word actually is magi, which has a um, priestly idea to it. Uh, the ones that the, uh, Moses and Aaron would come and they would do something, and then Moses's, or excuse me, Pharaoh's two high priests, we could call them that, would try to replicate it. He had his own system of religion going. We see Ahab and Jezebel had their prophets of Baal. Remember the showdown on, on I think it's Mount Carmel between Elijah and the that that awesome passage of scripture well those prophets of Baal were there in support of Ahab and Jezebel who were evil uh, rulers of Israel at that time Nebuchadnezzar had his magicians or his magi it's, it shouldn't be a surprise religion quite often is paired with political power Rome and the papacy went hand in hand England and the Anglican church in the Soviet Union and the socialist kind of uh, um, worldview, it's the religion of state, but which, by the way, we're falling fast into. 
the government is God. The government is everything. We worship the government and what they can do for us. So, it's, like I said, many people would claim not to believe in God. They believe in something, even if it is the power of the state or the, the power of government. And yes, even in our own nation, America and Christianity have been paired together, right? We have that kind of a history. So it shouldn't surprise us when we read and we see this dominating world ruler is also going to have a religious counterpart that's part and parcel with it. What we need to be is aware of this and kind of watching for us. There's going to be a religion, a, a religious side to the, power, the political power of the Antichrist. It's going to be paired with religion. We, we touched on this last week, but we need to revisit uh, because it's going to set the stage for some of what we read in our text. So if you flip over to Revelation 17, I want to revisit that a little bit. Revelation 17 tells us about this pairing of religion and power. Let's read the verse, first six verses. Revelation 17, verse 1, There came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, and I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Let's just pause right there. If you remember, that's the description of the Antichrist. So now, now we have this beast with a woman sitting on riding him. In verse 4, And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her, her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. So he sees this vision again, just to give a quick recap of this woman. Now, purple, scarlet, that's usually a royal color. She seems to be wealthy. She has all these gold and jewels and precious stones. Uh, but we're quickly given a, a look behind the scenes but just by her name. The mother of harlots. The mother of harlots. Um, we kind of noted this pairing last time. This Antichrist with this agreement or shared power or coalition of this woman who is called the mother of harlots. And it doesn't take very long or, or very much thinking to, to see that this must be a religious because it talks a religious side because it talks about her being drunken with the blood of the saints and with the martyrs of Jesus and and uh, just some of the other things that it talks about. So who exactly is this woman? What what is this religion that the uh, Antichrist is going to be paired with? What denomination is she? Because that's been the question long asked and I'm sure you've heard the conventional answer well that's easy it's Catholicism right that's what many people have said I mean it just has to be so because of what is said in scripture if you look in verse 9 it says here is the mind which hath wisdom the seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman sits the angel in giving explanation talks to John about this and Rome is built on a city of seven hills this is undoubtedly 
a reference to Rome, verse 18, The woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. So there's a reference to a geographical location. Well, we know the, the, head, uh, the headquarters of the Catholic Church, the Vatican, is in Rome, and it has been for ages. If you look in verse 2, it says, The kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. You look back through history, and not only the, the Caesars, but kings of the earth were controlled by, if you would, the Pope, and what the Pope would say. In fact, sometimes the Pope had more power than the actual ruler did. And so there was this kind of bedding down together of this religion and rulership of the land. And if you look in verse 6, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. And We'll get to that in just a second, but the Catholic Church has shed much blood of God's people. In fact, Peter names Rome Babylon in one of his epistles. So it's a done deal, right? Antichrist is going to make a deal with Catholicism and the false prophet is a pope. <laughs> Probably have heard that. Um, it's been a very long-standing interpretation and one that many hold to still. And I see the points. I'm not going to argue that Anybody's right or wrong, this is prophecy. It has yet to be fulfilled, so we don't know the answers. But I do see the correlations. I see the point. Rome is central in, in this explanation. It's mentioned uh, more than a couple times, and of course that being the seat of the Vatican. And yes, it's a very plain fact that the blood of martyrs has been shed at the hand of this group. Uh, just think about the Inquisition or the Dark Ages, uh, where they would go house to house, especially if they heard that you did not worship uh, the Pope or you did not um, bow down to the rule of the Catholic Church. They would go and, and ask you to recant. If not, you were burned at the stake or, or uh, uh, your life was taken from you. And that happened widespread in Europe uh, with nobody to stop it. I don't guess at that. I know it because it's written down in detail. People recorded it. And you know who recorded it? The Catholic Church recorded it for us. It's in their own writings uh, of their conquests, of their inquisitions, of their trying to stamp out of those who would not bow. And they, they are quite adamant that there was these groups that would not bow to the papacy. They would not uh, give their allegiance to a pope and they opposed infant baptism that... They decried that and said that didn't save anybody or that didn't do anything and they wouldn't go along and they wouldn't recant on that even when faced with the death of their families. One of the most heartbreaking books to read is a, a book called The Churches of the Valley of Piedmont. I believe it might, the, the title may vary but that's pretty much the main title of the book and it's a chronicle of... Uh, uh, we know them as Waldenses or Waldensian uh, believers, which is uh, a group of faithful people back in the 13, 14, 1500s, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, who lived in this valley of Piedmont, France, and they were somewhat in hiding. The Catholic Church found out, and there is massacres and just crazy, uh, terrible tortures that were done. Because they would not bow to these things. They would not bow to the worship of Mary or worship of the saints. And they were burned at the stake. Um, one account that has burned in my mind is of a child who would not give up her translation of the Bible, her copy of the Bible, because commoners weren't allowed to have those. 
it was one that was handwritten, hand copied. And the Inquisitor told her to let it go, and she would not. She held on to it even as her hand was placed over a candle, and as her tendons and her fingers popped and her skin peeled back, she would not let go of the Bible until she was finally uh, burned at the stake. They wouldn't let it go. They wouldn't recant because they knew what the truth was and they were slaughtered. Those who rejected institutionalized religion and lost their lives and all these groups who would keep rebaptizing people, even though these were baptized as infants and they would confess Christ, they would rebaptize them or they wouldn't accept other people's baptisms. All these rebaptizers, in fact, they earned the nickname rebaptizers, or we know it as Anabaptists. It's written down in, not in our history, but in the history of the Vatican, history of the Catholic Church. I don't have time to go through details, but you see the point. This woman, drunken with the blood of the saints, with the blood of the martyrs, and it seems to be a joyful thing. She has this, this cup in her hand where it, she seems to be enjoying it, and certainly that is true of history. And certainly many false things have sprung from the Catholic Church, such as the Protestant Reformation, people that held on to her to, to many of the same beliefs and, and uh, were persecutors of uh, those who held to the truth. But as I, all I'm saying is I see the point there, but I don't think that's the Catholic Church right there. I think it's something deeper. I think it's something deeper. I think it's broader than just one group. It's the name Babylon that leads me to that. You know where that name comes from? What word it springs from? Babel. Babel. That should ring a bell for us, right? If we're any kind of student of biblical history, that's the name of a city in the land of Shinar in Genesis chapter 11 where man's first great attempt at a worldwide religion happened. It's called the Tower of Babel. You, you don't, don't think man was just trying to see how high he could build a mound of dirt. No, he's trying to ascend up into heaven. We'll build a tower that reaches up to heaven. And I love the, <laughs> I love the way the Bible puts it. God had, he said, let us go down to see the, the tower. It didn't even reach very high, a couple stories maybe. So much that God has to look way down and see where it's at. But man, man was attempting to build this this unified religion against God. And, of course, we know what happens at the Tower of Babel. Later, we see a forced worldwide idol worship at the very same place in this very same land with a kingdom that has the very same name, Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. Remember this, this giant idol that he, he uh, uh, puts up and he says, for all the inhabitants of the land, all the people of my kingdom, he's the ruler of the known world at that time, all of the people of my kingdom, when you hear this music, when, you, when, when the signal's given, you bow down. Hmm. I don't think it's any coincidence that it's in the same area, same land, land of Shinar in Babylon. That's long before the New Testament. This idol worship, this false religion, this man's attempt at religion going on. In fact, it stretches all the way back to Cain. Cain brought his offering. And you know what happens with his lineage. 
I think what this woman symbolizes is false religion, man's attempts at religions, man's pride in his religions, man rejection, man's rejection of God's truth, the ultimate form of spiritual fornication. And that idea, that pride, that rejection of God's truth has mothered countless groups, hasn't it? In fact, that's where all false religion springs from, rejection of God's truth. Many of whom have spilled the blood of saints. The Catholic Church is not the only one. The, the Islamic faith has shed the blood of saints, as have many others. It's what Paul talks about in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits, seducing spirits and doctrine of devils, things that draw us away from the truth. And that has been the case ever since the Garden of Eden. I think this is symbolic of all false religion. It looks great. Most do. It's all prettied up and it's dressed up nice and it's got all these jewels and it looks like it's having a good time but it's still a filthy whore according to God. I don't care how nice you make false religion appear, it's still spiritual fornication. And I think that's what this is talking about. And you know we've all seen the effort to unite everybody as one. We're, uh, everybody's okay, everybody's truth is okay, we're all just one. That's called ecumenism. Ec yeah, that's a hard word for me to say. An ecumenical movement, ecumenism. Uh, if you've ever seen that, seen that word, that's what it means. Look for that to intensify. Look for that to succeed where people start crossing lines. And what I see here is a one-world government and a one-world religion paired. Where everybody's okay, we're all in the same boat, and now we've got this great world ruler who's supporting that and seems to bring everybody together. And look, he's made peace between the Muslim faith and the Jewish faith. And, you know, the Catholics are joining in and all, well, all Christians are joining in and everybody and the Buddhists don't care. We're all good. We're all one. That's what I see. And so um, we need to keep an eye out for that. But I, I do want you to notice this. Look in verse 15, Revelation 7 and 15. He saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the horse sits, are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. This is going to be a worldwide thing. Religions are going to come together. Faiths are going to come together. Even if they're diametrically opposed, they're going to come together and put their support along with or behind this one ruler. But it won't last for long. Verse 16, And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast... These shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. They're going to destroy her. There's going to come a time where they're going to coexist, and then that's done. Then there's going to be no more religion but one religion, which we'll show in a second. They're going to go along with it. The Antichrist is going to allow it for a while, and then that's it. It's done. Verse 17, For God hath put it in their hearts to fulfill His will, and to agree, okay, so not only is the will of God taking place, but God is allowing these people to agree, these, these rulers of the nation underneath, the nations underneath the Antichrist, all of a sudden they come to an agreement and they turn against religion and give their kingdom unto the beast until the word of God shall be fulfilled. And they give it over to the beast. They coexist for a time and then any form of religion is destroyed and one thing becomes the sole focus of any worship, that is the Antichrist. 
He becomes the one who is worshipped. It's not okay now to worship God and the Antichrist or this world ruler. They, they'll, they'll know him by another name. Or Buddha and this and. No, 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 no. You don't worship anything else but me because I am God. I am God. I sit in the temple. I am the one worthy of all worship. Again, pretty devilish, but if you, and I don't know if I'm being biased, but if you take it from a Christian worldview, if you have somebody to be claiming Jesus Christ to come in the flesh, and he can prove it by signs and wonders, and he's got this guy who is, who is being a prophet, then the world seemingly would say, oh, Christianity is right. Look, it is Jesus. Let's worship him. Just like I said, for your food for thought, because it's something I can't get out of my mind. But it could be another form, but that's what I could see happening. That's going to happen. It's going to be religion and power ultimately uh, uh, united in one. So he rules the world and he is worshipped as the ruler of the world. And all of this is done by the false prophet. So now we know what's going to happen. It's going to be done by the false prophet, and here's how he does it. Let's back to Revelation 13. So we know the end goal now. The world's religions are going to unite. They're going to put their power behind this one world, one world ruler. They're going to be done away with, and it's all going to become focused on him because he claims to be God. And the one who is the false prophet facilitates this. Verse 11, I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. So in verse 1, the beast comes up out of the sea. Well, if you've ever stood on the seashore, it's not a calm place, is it? There's wave after wave after wave. And then you ever get those moments like when all the waves stop crashing for just a couple seconds and it like goes silent. <laughs> you kind of look around like, what's going on? Because we're used to the, the constant motion of the sea and we see the storms on the sea and the boats that are taking shipwreck. And we what's that show on National Geographic, uh, the fishing one. Deadliest catch. You watch those guys on those boats and things go through. The sea's not a calm place, right? It's a, it's a roiling, boiling place. And the Antichrist is going to rise up out of the masses that are in unrest, and he's going to bring peace. He's going to bring a stillness to it. And it says the second beast rises up out of the earth, flat, still. So I think... Uh, what I see happening is after this peace, this world peace is established, sometime after that, this false prophet is going to rise up and begin his work. Probably during the first seal when the Antichrist brings peace. It says he comes up out of the earth and he had two horns like a lamb. Now, if you're like me, you read that word lamb and something immediately stands out, right? Jesus. Jesus is the lamb. Well, I don't think... I don't think the picture is given that he's going to be like Jesus. His ministry is going to be similar in this way. He's going to be gentle. He's going to be gentle. Just like a little lamb. Lambs don't have those huge, big ram's horns on the side of their head. They just got two little bumps. They're cute little lambs. And they're gentle. They nibble on your clothes a little bit, but they don't, they don't try to hurt you, right? They're gentle. This guy's going to be likable. People are going to gravitate toward him. They're going to hang on every word and believe everything that he says. I get the picture of like when Joel Osteen preaches. He just smiles so nice and 
seems so pleasant and people gravitate towards that, right? Sometimes the guys with fire under their belt can get people's attention, but people like somebody they can gravitate to and it makes them feel good and just... This guy's going to be really likable. It's going to be in contrast to the Antichrist, who's a scary monster of a beast. Right? He comes on the scene, and he's taking control, and ain't no standing against him. He takes control by sheer power. Like, you, you bow before me or else. My armies are coming after you, and you're dead. The false prophet is much more nice and gentle, like a little lamb, kind of like when Jesus came. And Jesus was gentle and loving, and he healed so many people, and... He's going to be very persuasive. There's been a lot of false prophets. A lot of people who've got gatherings. I mean, we've, we've seen persuasive people. I've heard persuasive messages. I've watched preachers on TV that have moved the masses. We see in history persuasive people that gain massive followings. Hitler gained a massive following because of mainly the way that he spoke. He's very gifted oratorily, and he could persuade people by his speeches to believe the junk that he was standing for. Backed up by military power, yes, but part of it was, in the beginning, was his, his way of speaking. He could capture people's attention. Muhammad gained a following. Joseph Smith gained a following. On and on down through history. We've, we've heard persuasive preachers. We've seen the impact that they could have, but Jesus told us there's many false prophets that are going to come. Though those people in the past have been persuasive, they're just one of many. This guy is the false prophet. He is the one that uh, puts all of them in one way to, 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 to shame. This one stands alone because the whole world's going to follow him. The whole world is going to follow and hang on every word. They're going to listen to his speeches and they're going to be moved I have scenes of the Beatles in the 60s when they would show up and people are just crying and going nuts. You know, I see the same kind of thing going on. It's, people will be so moved by him. They'll, thrang, they'll, they'll hang enthralled, captivated by his every word. And every word that comes out of his mouth is going to be satanic. He has two horns like a lamb and he spake as a dragon. Dragon. That's Satan, right? We already saw that in chapter 12. Satan is the father of lies. He's the father of deception. He can be very persuasive, but there's always lies there, even if there's a little bit of truth mixed in. Remember the garden? Well, she shall not surely die. Did God really say that? He uses deception and he'll throw in a little bit of truth, and I have no reason to believe this false prophet will be any different. And this deception will be on a worldwide scale. Let's notice just a couple more things will be done. Uh, verse 12, he exercises all the power of the first beast before him. He's got the full backing and support of the king of the world. Listen to this guy. Whatever he says goes. He'll be persuasive on his own, his own merit, but he's going to have the backing of, of the world leader. He's going to have free reign to do whatever he wants. So he, he exercises all the power of the first, be, first beast before him and causeth causes or makes. I don't know if that stood out to you. That phrase, to either make or to cause, is listed several times just in these seven verses. He makes people do this. He causes people to do this. 
He causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. His focus is worldwide. His power is worldwide. His hold on people is worldwide because He makes all that dwell in the earth to worship the first beast. Remember what we looked at in chapter 17 when the, the, the harlot enjoys a time of pairing with the first beast and then she's taken away and it's all about the beast. He makes the world worship this first beast. There is one religion, there is one focus of worship, and that is the Antichrist. Again, I'm wondering if this is a, uh, a copycat of the millennial reign seemingly to come where peace is restored and there is one ruler who is deserving of all worship. Um, again, food for thought. But notice what it says there at the end of the verse, whose deadly wound was healed. And again at the end of verse 14, he had a wound by the sword and did live. We have this appearance of a resurrection that gives power to the false prophet's words. Verse 13, And he doeth great wonders. So did he make a fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. It's not just words that this guy speaks, it's signs. Now whether he can actually call fire down from heaven or whether it appears that way, with the technology we have, it's not too hard to, to believe somebody can make fire to appear from fall down, to fall down from heaven. Um, but it's going to be signs, evident proofs. He's going to prove what he says is true by the things that he does. Verse 14, And he deceives them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast. So I think it's more than just fire. I think there's some miracles that go along with it. All in the sight, the oversight, the um, blessing of this beast. Saying to them that dwell on the earth, that they should make an image to the beast, which had a wound by the sword and did live. That they should make an idol. Part of this worship of the Antichrist is going to involve an idol. It's kind of old school, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> couldn't you do something a little bit new? Well... It might be old school, but it works because we love idols. We love to worship things we can touch, things we can feel. That's why, believe it or not, some people don't believe in God because they can't see Him, even though His work is all around us and within us. If they can't see it, they're not going to worship it. So they'd rather have a statue of Buddha that you could pat on the belly and put a donut out before the crowds come. Or uh, touch the foot of a statue of St. Mary or a car, or a dollar bill. We love idols. But this idol's a little different. Let me read to you, yeah, let me read you just a couple passages in closing. What the Bible says about the idols. Psalm 135 and verse 15 says this, The idols of the heathen are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. They have eyes, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Neither is there any breath in their mouths. Right? Duh. You could carve a statue. It's not going to see, even though it has eyes and has a mouth. It's not going to speak. Verse 18, And they that make them are like unto them. And so is everyone that trusteth in them. That's what the Bible says about idols. They're useless. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse says this, Woe unto him that saith to the wood, Wake up! Or to the dumb, mute stone, Arise, it shall teach. 
Behold, it's laid over with gold and silver, and there's no breath at all in the midst of it. I'm, I'm remembering the prophets of Baal, how they cried out to the image to speak or to do something. And Elijah says, well, maybe, he's, maybe he can't hear you, or maybe he's in the bathroom, or maybe what's going on, I don't know, maybe you should try harder. It's not going to happen. It's, it's stone. Idols don't speak. This idol is different. This idol is different. Notice in verse 15. And he, the false prophet, had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Can somebody read to me out of the New King James, verse 15, please? Revelation 13, 15. I'm sorry. We're back there. I'm curious what it says when it says the beast should both speak and after that. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. That's interesting wording to me and I don't know if it stands out to you. He gives power to this image to do two things. One, to speak. Second, to bring death to those who don't worship. Now, that could be speaking about the false prophet has that power. The wording there is, is a little bit um, interesting to me. I just wanted you to note that. I wanted to see if it was translated different in another translation. Evidently, everybody's got to get an idol, and this idol's going to speak to them, and they've got to worship it or else they die. I mean, that's the, the very basic reading of it. How in the world is that going to be accomplished? How do you make sure everybody has an idol? What if one house doesn't have an idol? How do you know they didn't worship? How are you going to check in on what you're going to have a worship police or what's going on with this? I, I know the whole world's going to worship and be deceived, but is everybody going to carve an idol? Are you going to pass them out? What's going on? The idea of this should not sound too far-fetched because you have amazing technology in your hands. You have images that speak to you. Ever do FaceTime? Ever watch a YouTube video? You've seen me preach to you through your cell phones or on your TV. Shouldn't be that big of a jump to see maybe what John was talking about. Let me just leave this with you in closing. How's this going to work? It could be an app. You are required to download and put your information in and you receive a notification, something maybe very similar to our emergency alert or Amber alert. Doesn't matter if your phone's on mute, that thing's going off, right? How many church services have you been in and beep, 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 everybody's phone's beeping because there's something you need to know. Hmm. Worship time, and you best check in. Because if you don't check in, somebody's coming for you. Maybe a daily message. I... I that, that goes along with it and it speaks to you and it gives you these instructions or this I, I don't know whatever it is whether it's something technologically we're speaking about or whether it's people actually going out and buying an idol that somehow gets brought to life the world is going to be more than willing to do this Verse 3 says, All the world wondered after the beast, and they worshipped the dragon which gave power to the beast, and they worshipped the beast. The whole world worships him. They'll gladly make an image to him. Verse 8, All that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. And if you don't, you die. 
right? That's what it says in verse 15. As many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. How's he going to do that? I think it's through the mark. What is the mark? That's a discussion for next week. We'll get to that and we'll talk about what 666 is and all that goes along with it. So I hope that uh, hope that was helpful and useful.